They just have this visceral reaction to a book on the topic of SNES or a class on it or uh, anything related to it. It just elicits this very visceral physiological response. If you ever go into a room of women and just say the word SNES, you can physically see them tense up and get defensive. Like, what's this person going to say? That's what I mean by trauma. I was in this Facebook group with thousands of from women. And every time someone would post a question related to SNES, could have been the most innocent, well-meaning question. She would just get attacked from left and right. Everyone would be yelling and screaming and feeling judged and feeling shamed. And it was so disproportionate and extreme. So I just see trauma in that type of response. You know, if someone says something and then you respond with such a disproportionate response, there's a saying, if it's hysterical, it's historical, right? So when people respond in that way, that to me says there's something going on here. There's a problem that people can't be around the word SNES. They can't read books on the word SNES. They don't want to talk about it. And if someone does bring it up, they attack them. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Talking about Snute triggers a lot of people. That became clear to me when the Orthodox Conundrum podcast released episode number 145, entitled The Challenges of Teaching Snute and the Challenges of Being Tsenua with Shana Goldberg. In that episode, we discussed some of the most pressing issues relating to Tsenute, translated broadly and perhaps inexactly as modesty, and our conversation generated quite a bit of discussion and was one of our most popular episodes ever. Today's conversation is again about Snute, but from the perspectives of Bracha Polakoff and Rabbi Anthony Manning, the authors of a very well-received new book entitled Reclaiming Dignity, A Guide to Snute for Men and Women. In this wide-ranging discussion, we talked about some of the same issues discussed in the earlier podcast, as well as some that are quite different. Among the topics are how to define Snute, what has gone wrong in education for Snute, that so many people are turned off by the very word, and the trauma that some experience when it comes to Snute how to legitimize different approaches, the problem of weaponizing modesty in order to delegitimize others, how much of snute is subjective, the confusing of the terms snute and erva, and the consequent problems, whether obsessing about modesty leads to an over-sexualization of women, the judgmentalism that seems to be part and parcel of typical thinking about snute, and much more. We'll get to our conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Bracha Polakoff is a licensed clinical social worker, speaker and writer. She currently serves as the founder and director of Continuing Education at Bright Ideas Continuing Education, where she provides high-quality continuing education programs for mental health professionals in the United States and Canada. She has also taught Torah to both high schoolers and adults in a variety of settings and has participated in the Associated's Young Leadership Council and the Orthodox Union's Women's Initiative Leadership Summit. Bracha lives in Baltimore, Maryland, with her husband and three children. Rabbi Anthony Manning teaches in many educational institutions in Jerusalem, as well as lecturing widely in Israel, England, and the U.S. Since 2017, he has been co-director of Midrashat Tehillah. Rabbi Manning is also a senior lecturer at Chappelle's Midrash Rachel and gives a regular weekly shiur at the OU Israel Center in Jerusalem. He and his family moved to Israel from England in 2002, giving up a successful corporate legal career as a partner in a London law firm to become a rabbi and teacher. He lives with his wife, Sarah, in Alonshfut in Gush Etzion, and they have two married children living in Israel. As a final comment before we begin, their book, Reclaiming Dignity, sold out almost as soon as it was released, an obvious testament to the need that the authors are filling. It will be reprinted in the next couple of months and is still available in some bookstores. Rabbi Anthony Manning and Bracha Polakoff, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. Thank you for having us. Writing a book on Sneud, I would think, never having done it, would be considered by a lot of people to be a lose-lose proposition. This is a topic which, for reasons that we will be discussing, many people find very uncomfortable, perhaps even oppressive. So, Bracha, let me start with you. What were your goals in writing this book? And more specifically, what were you trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I I definitely agree with what you said about a lose-lose proposition. It definitely was a very scary endeavor. Um, because it is a very sensitive issue and we have to be very careful how we set things. And, you know, it's, it's important to be careful with this, with this topic. Um, but I also felt like it was really time for a new resource um, that could help people connect to SNES as a Jewish value. And I was really seeing SNES being talked about as this like elephant in the room or not being talked about rather, you know, I just felt like it was important that we talk about it as a value and reclaim, reclaim it as a value, which is the title of the book. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about SNES as compared to Shabbos. You know, if someone would share with us, they really don't like Shabbos or they feel disconnected from it or they dread Shabbos as a Jewish person in the community, we would find that really hard to hear. Um, Shabbos is a really important part of our week. It's a really important part of our life, our values. But Sneas is kind of the same thing. It's also an important Jewish value. And I was hearing a lot of women and men, but especially women talking about it as something negative or burdensome, something they didn't connect to, they didn't relate to, they found traumatic in some cases. So this was something I just felt was really important was to create, um, you know, a book and a resource that would really do the opposite of that, help women and men to connect to uh, SNES as a value, reclaim it, and really try to help them reclaim their own relationship also in order to give it over to their own children, their students, um, other community members. So we're really trying to completely change the conversation, change the narrative um, about this topic in the community. Um, And I also really wanted to highlight in the book the importance of Sneas as a midah and a mitzvah that applies to all Jews, men and women alike. Um, And I think that's something we've kind of moved away from as a community. 
Um, but we're really trying to get back on track with that, with this book and show how that is based on the Torah sources. That is really what SNES is. And the other thing um, that I really wanted to do in the book was to really respect the halachic diversity of the Orthodox community by showing that there are different halachic standards that halacha, you know, there are, there are red lines within halacha, but a lot of halacha in this area does change and shift depending on the community that it's in. And by doing that, we really increase that respect for each other, right? For the different parts of our community. Um, and that's something I think is really unique um, to talk about specifically with SNES. I don't really see a lot of people doing that. Um, so that was really our goal. Thank you for explaining that. And there are a lot of points that you made that I think we're going to come back to as our conversation continues. One in particular, however, I'd like to address to Rabbi Manning when you mentioned that tzniyut is something that has to be seen as a value for both men and for women. In fact, the subtitle of the book is A Guide to Tzniyut for Men and Women, which I think is very notable and probably surprising. So Rabbi Manning, perhaps I've already somewhat answered the question, but my guess is that you've received some perhaps uh, negative feedback by people who say, why is a man writing a halachic sefer about sinut for women? Is that appropriate at all? So I'll put that out there and see what you say about that issue. Yeah, sure. That, that is a good question. And it's a legitimate question. And I do hear it. Um, I get approached by people who are often very frustrated by how narrow the conversation is about sinut. And they say, well, surely sinut must be something more than women's clothing it must be short more than you know women's bodies and they're very frustrated with that very limited narrative and the answer is correct sneered is about much much more than that it's a much deeper topic it's a much broader topic which we'll you know talk about over the next few minutes uh, but then the same people who express that frustration say to me and why is a man writing a book about sneered What's really happening there is those people are maybe unintentionally playing into the same narrative that they actually find incredibly frustrating, which is they're also assuming that Sneod is all about women's clothing and women's bodies. And of course, it's not. We'll talk more about what it is about. Therefore, once you, you broaden the picture, which we really do in this book, to a much more holistic understanding of Tzniyot and move away from that, that incredibly limited narrative, then the question of whether a man's voice is relevant becomes less um, less potent. Now, for sure, there are still many aspects of this on which a man's voice is not the voice that you want to hear. Um, I, I heard a pod podcast from you recently with uh, Shana Goldberg. Uh, Shana and her family are friends of our family. They're neighbors with us here in Alan Schfoot. It was a fantastic podcast, and I'd recommend everybody to listen to that. Um, and she said at the beginning of that, surely Sneod must be must be about something more than women's clothing must be more than just women and then the rest of the podcast was a fantastic podcast but it was largely about women and women's clothing which is what it should have been about because Shana was a fantastic person to put that over there so this book is filling that well surely question surely there must be more to sneered than clothing and women the answer is yes there is and this is what the book does and it fills that what I think has been an incredible vacuum and and puts a lot of that detail in Thank you for referencing that episode with Shana Goldberg. I agree she was a fantastic guest. In fairness to Shana, however, let me point out that the reason that that episode focused on women's clothing and not on Snute as a broader concept was because that was the goal of that particular podcast. In other words, in advance, when I spoke to her about what we talk about, we said we're going to be speaking primarily about women's clothing. And as a result of that, that's why that was the direction, not because that's what she thinks Snute is. Let me follow up by asking, given that Snute applies to men as well as women, I'll have a two-part question. Number one, are you speaking about clothing as well? And perhaps even if you are or if you're not, 
does it apply as much to men as to women? In other words, what I'm asking is that, yes, okay, we'll accept that it applies not only to women, but a lot of people will still say, and we will talk about this more, that it remains primarily a woman's mitzvah. Are you disputing that or are you just trying to fill in the gaps in the other areas? No, I think that um, the mitzvah does clearly relate to women and maybe in a specific way to women that it doesn't relate to men. But this idea that a book on sneud, I've, I've had this. People, I, you know, people say, "Oh, you've written a book. What's it about?" And so I say, "Oh, it's a book about sneud." And I see their eyes roll and say, "Oh my goodness, that is the last thing we need," because their assumption is it's about all the things that they don't like about books about sneud. Well, this book has six hundred and thirty-eight pages, and only six of those pages are about the detailed specifics of women's clothing, if you like. Now, I'm quite happy with that. Like ratio it means ninety-nine percent of the book is about something else. In terms of men, it's, again, not just about men's clothing. That's often just applying the same limited narrative. I had a conversation with a, with a very educated Rosh Hashiva, and I said, I'd like to come and speak about Sneas in your yeshiva. And he sort of smiled and said, well, you're going to tell my guys what to wear on the beach? And I said, well, no, that's actually not what I was going to speak about. That may be one application. But actually, when you get into the book, it's about broader values that apply to men and women equally and much deeper ideas. So, um, yes, I think we're not just applying the same narrative that's nearest to men, but we're we're really creating and, and, and showing people, and this is you know not my Torah, it's the Torah of my Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz, that there is a much bigger picture out there which relates equally to men and women. And people have to see that. And when they read it, they understand it. Then in that case, let me turn it over to Bracha and ask her about that exact point in terms of defining tznut. Let's assume that tznut is not about clothes. That is a detail, a prat, but it is not the essence of what it's all about. So Bracha, perhaps you can explain Despite what many people or most Orthodox Jews assume that Snute is, what actually is Snute? What is this value that Rabbi Manning just mentioned right now? So I think you're going to have to read all 600 and some pages to really understand it. Um, I think anything I say is just going to be a gross, you know, oversimplification. I'm happy to try, but I just want Welcome to, to the world of podcasts. make that caveat, right? <laughs> so um, I think if I had to like oversimplify again, you know, as a mitzvah, Snius is about dignity self-respect and a constant awareness of, of Hashem. And then in the book, we also talk about Sneas as a midah, which is another thing that's brought down um, by Chazal in different places. Um, and as a midah, Sneas is about privacy, internality, and increased focus on what Hashem wants from us rather than doing things for others and what other people think. So that's my you know, conception of Sneas based on all these ideas that we're going to be talking about. Um, but one of the things that I think about as far as dress specifically um, is I like to think about, you know, I'm a very visual person. So my analogy is a tree. You know, if you have this tree, Sneas dress or what we, you know, associate as modest clothing or dress, both for men and women, is a branch on the tree, right? It's not the roots of the tree. It's not the trunk of the tree. It's a branch on the tree, right? And so I think if people work on the the mitzvah and the midah of Sneas, developing that in themselves and internalizing those ideas, I think a lot of times naturally it may lead to more modest dress because they are trying to, you know, connect to that idea of dignity and self-respect and focusing on themselves as, you know, an internal focused person. But I think we have to kind of put it where it belongs. Again, that's my opinion. Not everyone's going to necessarily agree with that. But from all of the learning that I've done in this area, it just seems to me that really we have to look at it from that broader perspective and look at SNES as such a bigger and broader and deeper concept than what we've been maybe, you know, we're used to talking about as a community. 
So does that mean that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Bracha, so please tell me if I'm wrong, but our emphasis on clothing as the essence of tznut so often is misguided and in fact is missing the point? Would you go that far? I think it's a branch. I think it's an important piece of it. You know, I think it's an important piece. I'm not saying it's not important or that the halachos related to this are not important, but I think it's within a bigger context. It was always discussed in a bigger context historically. Um, I'm not a historian, but it seems from speaking to people and actually one of the contributors in our book, uh, Feige Zeltzer, spoke about this in her article as well. It seems like there was a shift in the way we talked about this topic as a community that happened sometime around the 1960s. There was a lot of cultural changes, the way people were dressing and expressing themselves in that way changed, um, a lot going on. And there was this almost reactionary response where Tznias began to be taught as this list of rules. Um, and that historically was not how it was taught in the past. And so I really do think um, there was kind of this shift that happened. And you see this shift happening, like Rabbi Manning said, you know, it's happening across the board that a lot of people speak about Tznias in this way, about being about dress. Actually, in the introduction, I'm sorry, the foreword to the book, Reverkovitz wrote something um, about this. He said, what makes this area of halacha so beautiful is also responsible for being so misunderstood and misrepresented. Educating the masses and sensitivities is much more complicated than codifying rules, and most educators have opted for the latter. While the entire subject is often referred to as dignity, modesty, and that which is befitting a princess, those references serve only as a sugar coating of a list of rules that the students are to follow. So I've heard it really talked about this way. I've heard it in the more yeshivish world. I've heard it in the more modern Orthodox world. This is something that I think we struggle with a lot because we are living in a time that's very superficial, um, very much, you know, this idea of, you know, how do we present ourselves? What are other people thinking? Self-promotion, like these are words that we use culturally. And so we're kind of projecting that onto Smias and making it all about how do we dress? How do we look? What are people thinking? What do other people think if we wear it like this or wear it like that or wear this type of kippah or that type of kippah or this type of skirt or that type? There's so much anxiety around it because we live in a society that's very superficially focused. Um, but I don't think that's what Smias is. I think that is such an important point. And I'm going to take it in a very specific direction because I agree completely in the sense that the emphasis on specific rules and particularly specific rules about clothing, as opposed to talking about the fundamental value, the underlying Torah value that it's supposed to represent, has led to all sorts of strange problems that the Orthodox community has, and if I can say so, at times isn't even aware of. A key example in my own mind, and I think this might be one of the big issues that I hope will come up because people seem to be ignoring it too often is the problem of materialism, of people spending thousands and millions of dollars for the sake of show, or even not for the sake of show, for the sake of luxury. Far be it for me to tell people what to do with their money, but to quote Justice Potter Stewart, a quote which I use often, I know it when I see it. I don't know where that line is. I don't think anyone knows where the line is. It's pretty clear, however, when the line has been crossed. And too often, I believe, in our Orthodox world— the value of tznut when it comes to material possessions, whether it's the type of vacation we take or the type of weddings that we throw or the type of clothes that we wear, I'm not speaking about hemlines, but cost, I think we've simply ignored the fact that this is a piece of tznut. And Bracha, perhaps, I'm not really sure there's a question there, but I'm wondering what you think in terms of that idea. Do you agree with me that tznut needs to apply to materialism as well? And that is something the Orthodox world needs to work on? I 100% agree with that. It's something I've been thinking about and talking about for a while. I actually wrote an article about this topic about five or six years ago, 
Um, and I was looking recently for something else um, on the topic and I Googled materialism and SNES and my article popped up because there's nothing else out there. <laughs> so there's very few people that are talking about this. Um, I think it's really a neglected aspect of SNES. Um, the one person that I actually have heard talk about the link between SNES and then our culture of consumption and materialism um, is Rabbi Jeremy Weeder. Um, he actually just released a podcast with Kosher Money that I highly recommend that everybody listen to on this exact topic. I was uh, privileged to hear him speak when we lived in Richmond, Virginia, and he talked about this topic. Um, and again, it was the first time I'd heard a Rav get up and speak about it. So it is a very unique um, approach that he has. And one of the things that he said was that he sometimes feels like he wants to drive around certain neighborhoods yelling at the houses, preach us, preach us. Um, and I, I think he was joking, but I think the point that he was making was exactly what you, you know, said in the question, which is that, you know, sometimes when we're doing these huge over the top additions on our houses and, uh, you know, here we call them McMansions, you know, we're trying to be over the top, you know, in a way that's extra, right? It's not for our family because we need the space and we're doing it, you know, for positive reasons, but there's a part of it that's coming from a place of wanting to show off to others. Look how much I have, look how much I've done. Um, and of course, it's not just our homes or our clothing. It could even be our talents, our gifts, you know, a vacation we went on, the fact that we have a beautiful family, kind of hire. Like, we don't need to put all these things in front of other people's eyes all the time. Um, and I think that's something that sometimes gets neglected in these conversations. But I do think it's also really important to be intentional and think about these values of SNES when we are making those decisions. I agree completely. I'll just point out that Rabbi Weeder was actually on this podcast as well, maybe a year and a half ago. He did not speak, I don't think, about Snood, but he spoke about materialism and consumption. So yeah, I think I did hear that episode, yeah. He's definitely at the forefront of a very important discussion. Yes, Rabbi Manning. Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to add one point to that, which is um, at the very opening of the Shulchan Aruch, the Bir Halacha, the first Bir Halacha, where the Chofetz Chaim comes in and says, what do you need to know at the very beginning? He goes through the Sheish Mitzvahs Tamilias of the uh, the six constant mitzvah. And when he starts there with the mitzvah to love God, Ahavat Hashem, he says very clearly that the opposite of loving God, which is a mitzvah that we but applies to every Jew all the time that they're awake, is not rejecting God, God forbid, but it's loving money. That is the way that we undermine the mitzvah of Ahavat Hashem. And he talks there at length about materialism. And therefore, he felt it was important enough to put on the very opening page of his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. And uh, I'm just not sure that that gets read or learnt as much as perhaps it should. Okay, thank you for putting that out. That's very important. Rabbi Manning, let me continue with you. Throughout this book, you have a specific shita. We've been alluding to it, talking about it. Bracha gave some explanation of what it is as well. But can you briefly summarize the shita that you are working with in teaching Tzniyut? Meaning, what do you say must be done differently and how is that manifest in the way that you wrote this book? Okay, so first of all, I didn't write this book to tell everybody else that they're doing it wrong. Um, if people are happy and connected with their you know, communities in the way that they connect to Sneud, that's great. And I constantly, we constantly in this book, send people to their own community leaders, their own rabbanim, the, the women in their community to see how their community does things. And as Brocha said, this book sets out to legitimize rather than delegitimize. So I want to just, you know, not... Uh, say sort of yes say at the beginning that I'm not trying to undermine other people's approaches but I think there are a few common mistakes um that you know I, I, I in the way I've seen it I've been teaching in mostly women's education for the last 20 years therefore I've heard a lot of feedback 
uh, from people. Just to kind of list a few of them, um, the focus on clothing we've always spoken about, it, it, but it's not a, an, a chidush, it's not new to hear that sneers is about more than clothing. What is new, I think, is that that conversation, which is not about clothing, is also structured, also halachic, also deep and, uh, you know, and very put together rather than just a fluffy structure. I think there is, as we've spoken about, a deep confusion between sneers and dress code. A lot of what gets communicated in the name of Tzniut is really dress code. It's about regulating society. And a lot of the pain, a lot of the trauma about Tzniut is now addressed at Tzniut, whereas really it should be addressed at dress code. Um, a lot of regulation has gone on in the Jewish society. You need to read Rab, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik's classic corruption and reconstruction as to how that works through the whole of society. Um, and dress code is a part of that. Now, the problem is people have been calling dress code sniut. So now all of the, the anger is being addressed at sniut, whereas sniut is about something uh, different. Um, I think there is a big misunderstanding about the, the nature of the halakha when it comes to sniut objective versus subjective halakha. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the nature of what halakha is. Um, leaving men out of the picture is a major mistake. And by the way, when the rabbis talk about these issues in the Gemara, they make an, an enormous effort to be even-handed. A lot of people who are listening to this podcast will have heard the Gemara about Kimchit. Uh, Kimchit, a woman who was incredibly focused on her sniot, the, 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 the beams of her roof never saw her dressed inappropriately, etc. But what people often don't know is that there's a parallel Gemara about Rebbe Yossi that says almost exactly the same thing word for word. So Chazala, they're saying that we don't want you to think that this is an issue for women only. It's an issue for men. I think there's a massive confusion between sniot and erva. And this goes across the, the board. And we can, again, this is quite technical, but it's very important. People, oh, often, Please explain that. Yeah, people often start, and I've seen this in curriculums from different kinds of schools, hashkafically, but people often start a conversation about sniot with, okay, let's open the Gemara in Brachas, in Daf Chavdalad, and Tefach Be'isha Erva. Now, why are you bringing that as the root or as the first source in a conversation about sniot? That Gemara has got nothing to do with sniot. It's dealing with the issue of erva. What is erva? Erva treats people as an object and they affect in different ways other people's ability to daven, other people's ability to say brachot, to say words of Torah. Even if they're dressed entirely appropriately for the circumstances, for example, somebody in the shower is not required to wear any clothes at all. That's completely tzanua, but there's a lot of erva showing, understandably. So someone couldn't daven in the side of that person. Sniud is not about that at all. Sniud is treats a person as a subject, not an object, a subject inviting God into their world. You know, we can talk about the shita that I positively put forward in a minute, or we do, but I think that's a very big mistake and it leads to a lot of misunderstandings. People talk about, oh, well, there's a tefach rule in Sinead. Well, really there isn't, there's a tefach rule in Erva. Um, people- and I'll just explain that tefach means a hand breath, a certain amount of skin or hair that can or cannot be uncovered. That's what we're talking Correct. about. And if you look very clearly, it's absolutely um, you know, manifest that that discussion is about erva. It's not about sniyut. The discussions about sniyut are in the Gemara in, in Ksubas, which deal with that Yehudit, which we'll talk about soon. So I think there's a big mistake in how this is uh, how this is taught. And, and just finally, in terms of mistakes, there's an enormous delegitimization of communities which sneers seems to be a wep has been weaponized on some level that is the way that people do this. People don't dress the or act the way they act. They they don't dress the way the other people act because they're somehow delegitimizing. So moving away from those mistakes, really there are three new things in this shita. Let's just briefly mention them. 
Number one, the source for Tzniyut is not in the in the Navi, in Mitra. People often start with Mitra. Oh, at Aleichet. It's a very important source. But the source... Walk modestly or walk humbly. Or right. Walk humbly in front of God, etc. etc. Um, the source is actually in the Torah. The source for a Torah mitzvah has to be in the Torah. It can't be in, in Nach. Um, and therefore, stage one of this new approach, Rav Berkowitz's approach is that the where the Tzniyot appears as one of the 613 mitzvot, and that's how it's recorded in the Rishonim, is in the mitzvah on the soldier to act with dignity, even in extreme situations, and have a an area where they're going to use the bathroom and keep the battlefield bathroom clean and dignified. Why? Because they have to invite God into their machina, even in an extreme situation. That is the root source of tzniyot. It's not about what you are in public. It's about how you behave when nobody else is there and that you shouldn't say, and this is how the Shulchanov rules on tzniyot, you shouldn't say, I'm alone in my room. Nobody can see me. I can act like an animal. I can act however I want. No, because a person has to have an awareness of their own self-dignity. That is the root of tzniyot. That's where it appears in Shulchan Aruch. And the, the Ramah opens Shulchan Aruch with a discussion of tzniyot. How are you lifnei Hashem in bed, in the shower, wearing your pajamas, uh, in the bathroom, in private settings? Only then can you move into the public. And stage two then gets into the mitzvah of the sota. And people are going to say, well, what's sota got to do with sniyot? And in fact, there's an entire halachic value learned out of sota, which is how, what is dignity in public? And this is really critical because when we learn mitzvah, when we learn halacha, the Ramban says this in a few places. We're not just learning the specific details for that mitzvah. We're learning underlying values that lead us to, to be a Torah Jew. So what does it mean to be a Torah personality? And therefore, Sota informs that, and there's a whole chapter in the book on that. And then finally, what I think else, well, the other thing that's new is the, 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 the analysis of Dati Hudik, which we'll hopefully talk about, which is the way that Sniut is subjective to different communities, and it's built that way, by, by the, the Gemara, which leaves women in control of what isn't isn't Sanua and allows them to differentiate between communities. And of course, that then leads you to have to define well, what is a community today? It's no longer geographic, it's associative. And therefore, that whole definition of community and hashkafa and the anxiety that people have with that is part of this. So I think these are the, the things that go wrong. And these are the ways that we've tried to introduce a new conversation. I want to ask about that third aspect first, specifically Dat Yehudit, which you mentioned a couple of times. Could you explain what you mean by that and what that really is? Obviously, podcasts are inherently reductionist and simplistic, but as best as you can in a couple of minutes to tell us what that means and how it relates to Sneut. Sure. So like I said before, the way you go looking for the laws of Sneut in the Gemara is not in the discussion about Erva. It's in the discussion in Sudas. What does that deal with? It deals with marriages and, and men and women, the way they behave to each other. And if men behave inappropriately, then the woman is entitled to divorce and receive a financial settlement. And if the women behave inappropriately, then the other way around. And there's a there's an analysis of that. Dan who did is the, the uh, and let's not make a mistake here, it's not dat with an I in it. Dat you did means the Jewish rules. Meaning what? There are certain modes of behavior of which the Gemara gives a very short list of objective behaviors, which are considered to be lacking in sniot. And the Rambam explicitly equates that Yehudit equals sniot, and the sources are all in, in the book there. That is a very short list of objective behaviors, people who are overly flirtatious, etc., etc. But then, and here's the genius, 
Rashi brings this down, the Rambam brings this down in a very similar wording, that you who did in the rest of its application is very subjective. The, the wording of Rashi is, um, uh, the way that the Jewish women choose to have the custom of behavior, nahagu, the ordaining of minhag, even though it's not written down anywhere. And this really opens up the entire topic in a way that I think people have not understood before, because all of the quote unquote details that come with these dress codes that that people produce, people produce rules about, you know, what kind of shaitl is appropriate? And is it this kind or this length or this colored clothing or this style of clothing? And people pay vast amounts of money to put adverts in the Jewish you know, press saying that don't wear your clothes this way, wear them this way. And people are left very flummoxed, like, where are these rules from? Who invented these rules? Where are their sources? And people are not giving sources for them for the precise reason that their sources are meant to be in the minhag of Jewish women. And that's what's going wrong here. When, you know, rabbis or leaders or even rabbitsons produce dress codes for the community, you, you can live in a community like that. That's fine. If you like a heavily regulated community, that's a dress code approach to these things. That's not sneered. Sneered is meant to be that each society, the religiously motivated, sensitized women of that society, and again, define society, bigger conversation, develop what is and isn't appropriate for them. So in certain societies, let's say in the yeshivish world, for one of a better expression, um, many women feel that it's appropriate and dignified for them to wear stockings when they're out in public. Now, that is a rule that those women have created for their own society, and it's a binding rule. Minag is not a lower level than halakha. It's a form of halakha. I'm Ashkenazi. I don't look it particularly, but I am. If I decide I just want to have a bowl of rice on Pesach, and who cares because it's not in the Gemara, I can't. I'm bound by Ashkenazi minhag on this. So to a woman who's, let's say, in a society where the women uh, have decided that this is appropriate, has to dress in that way. Whereas a woman in another society, let's say a religious Zionist society in Israel, which is very attuned to tzniyut as a value, may have decided, well, no, open-toed sandals and something else on the on the lower leg is absolutely appropriate. And when we talk about standards, neither of those is higher or frumer than the other. It's just the community practice of those women have defined it. And that's what's, and that goes beyond women. Men have that yehudit as well. Um, if I walk into a shul in a Haredi neighborhood dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, it's not just that I've done something inappropriate. I've, I've, I've done something undignified. It's not how people dress there. And it goes beyond clothing as well. So this whole topic of that yehudit really opens up what this is all about. Then let me ask you the other way as well. You mentioned somebody who walks in in a Hawaiian shirt, which might be appropriate in his particular community in Meisharim. That would be not Sanua because that's not appropriate there. Would it go the other direction also? If someone wears his strimal and a long bekisha and walks into a religious Zionist shul where people are accustomed to wear white shirts and no jacket, would you call that not Sanua? Meaning if it's not really something which has levels, is that true as well? So this is the beauty. Once you get into the language of minhag, which is how this is framed, and many areas of halacha are framed as minhag, whether you keep second day yonsef, is framed as minhag, even though it's binding in halakha. Once you're in the in the in the ro- in the realm of minhag, then there are um, systems as to how to make that work. It depends whether you're visiting or whether you're going to live there permanently. So if I have minhag A and I visit a place with minhag B, so the Gemara makes very clear that if I'm just staying temporarily and I'm going back to where I came from, I don't become one of the locals. I don't have to turn into them. 
but I have to adapt my minhag to be respectful to their sensitivities. However, if I come and live in that place, then I can no longer walk around as the person I was before. I have to adapt to their minhag. So I think it does go the other way. Let's give an example. Let's say uh, a chosid from uh, Sha'arim decides to go to a religious kibbutz for Shabbat. So he doesn't need to turn into a kibbutznik for Shabbat. That's Purim. That's not Shabbat, okay? He can dress as he dresses with his minhag, and I don't think he'll offend anybody by being a guest on the religious kibbutz dressed like that. But if he loves the kibbutz life so much that he says, I've, I've got to come and live here, I want to be a kibbutznik, then he, I don't think it's appropriate for him to be walking around in his Shemona Begadim, dressed like the Kohen Gadol, which is highly appropriate in one setting, but it's really not appropriate. Now, maybe he doesn't need to wear a, you know, a kibbutz hat and shorts for, for, for Minchal Shabbat, but maybe there's another way that he can blend in with, in a way which is in accordance with his self-dignity, but uh, Minchal. So it's a, a lot of thought is involved in this. I'm going to press a little bit because I'm a little bit confused because if I understood you correctly, you said that the person from the kibbutz or wherever who wears comfortably a Hawaiian shirt and shorts on Shabbat, because that's his minhag, that's the minhag of his community, should he go to Meisharim for Shabbat, he should not wear that. On the other hand, you said that the guy from Meisharim who goes to the kibbutz, he is allowed to wear his strimal and bekisha. It sounds like you're saying that the one who's wearing the strimal is being more machmir, which is where that law of minhag comes into play. That you take on the chumrah of whichever one is more strict in a given place. But the whole point is that it's not a matter of chumrah. Right. It's a matter of different tracks, neither of which is stronger or not. So I would argue, based on what you said, that that guy with the strimal who comes to the kibbutz shouldn't wear a strimal. I think it depends on the sensitivities of the people. And this is one of the things we've talked about at length in the book. A lot of these issues require nuance and sensitivity to the way other people feel. That's why there's a whole chapter on Beinad and Lechavera mitzvahs. You have to ask yourself, how are people in that locale going to react to me acting like this, whether you're a man or a woman or dressing like this? And it may be that if this person is visiting an area where they don't normally see people in Hawaiian shirts, etc., and I don't want letters from people in Hawaii saying, what have you got against Hawaiian shirts? But it may be that he'll say, well, actually, no, they won't mind, and I'm a visitor, and I'm a tourist, and it'll be fine, and if that's correct, then that's fine. But if he feels, well, no, I do need to change the way I dress in order to not offend people, then I absolutely agree with you. That goes in both directions, and there has to, there has to be thought through. The word sanua is used twice in Tanakh. Once in Micha, in terms of walking humbly with God, and once in Mishle, in terms of people who have Chochmah, people who are thought through, that Tznuim Chochmah, people forget about that source. Therefore, in order to apply Tznis in a way which is authentic, it requires a lot of thought, a lot of nuance, and you can't just do it by you know pulling out a list of rules. It, it, it's not going to work that way. Okay, I hear that. I'd like to come back to some things you mentioned, but first I'd like to ask Bracha a question, because now that I've sort of raised the question and you've addressed the idea of judgmentalism, where people are looking at other people and how do I look in that particular context, I'd like to ask about how do we address in a general societal sense the judgmentalism that often seems to accompany the way that we talk about Snute, meaning so often, Bracha, we look at Snute as for a lot of people, the exclusive measuring stick of how religious a woman is, for example, and frankly, it usually is used for women more than for men. And I'm curious what you would say to people who say that, you know, for example, in uh, in Shiduchim, people, one of the first things that people often ask is, oh, how does she dress? I'm not talking about her looks. I'm talking about they define how frum she is based on how long her skirt is or whether she wears socks or not. And based on what Rabbi Manning just said, that probably isn't a valid 
measuring stick. It, it's more of an identifier of a community, but not necessarily of how religious you are. And I think people often look at it as how religious are they really? What do you think about that, Bracha? Well, I think it comes from the same root issue that we were talking about earlier, which is that we do live in a very superficial time where people are very judgmental. Um, but I think that's why it's so incredibly important that Rabbi Manning's section did include an entire chapter on Bain Adam Lachavero, because these two issues are intertwined, but they shouldn't be. Um, I think as a community, we need to, in general, be less judgmental. That's also a mitzvah in the Torah is to be less judgmental, right? And so I think we need to first address that piece of it. But then when it comes specifically to this topic, I think, again, just to mirror what, what both of you had talked about earlier, it comes down to a lot of this interaction between communities and how people do look at, oh, this community is better or this one's worse or I'm more from or they're less from. And we use these kind of um, measuring sticks that aren't really based in the actual halacha. Um, and so I think going back to what Rabbi Manning said about Das Yehudis, when people learn the actual halachos, especially as they're laid out in this book specifically, I think people will get that respect for each other. And it definitely decreases the, that judgmentalism. We had um, a reader reach out to us who read the whole book a few weeks ago. She lives in a Haredi community in Yerushalayim. And she shared with us that she read the whole book. And she said, as someone who's you know very much in the Haredi world, I didn't agree with every single thing in it. But I will tell you that it had a profound impact on the way I look at other people. And she gave me the example. She said, you know, I was at a park the other day with my family. And I realized that in the past, you know, I look around at all the other women in the park and in my head, it was kind of as a, not, not necessarily consciously, but I was looking at, at all these other people and thinking, oh, I'm much more firm than them because, you know, I cover my legs with tights and I wear this type of clothing. And she would look down at these other women. And she said, after reading your book, I looked at those same women and I, I had this newfound respect that just like I'm following my community minhag, they're following their community minhag. And she said, all that judgmentalism that I've been walking around with for years and years and years, she said it just dissipated. Um, and not only that, but she said it actually ironically made her feel even more of a conviction in what she was doing because she realized, oh, what I'm doing is grounded in that community minhag, but what they're doing is also grounded in their minhag. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way of how someone took these concepts and integrated them into the way they think and feel um, toward others. That is such a good anecdote. I'm really glad you said that because I certainly agree that judgmentalism is a plague and we have to do our best to get out of it. And Ashrechem, if your book, which is obviously very well received and it is a fantastic book, I'll say that now, but if the only thing that it does is to help people be less judgmental and to say, you know what, people you thought were not following the halakha may very well be well grounded in the halakha and therefore can maybe perhaps stop some of that tension that comes with that judgmentalism between different communities, that alone would be a tremendous accomplishment. So I salute that. 100%. And just one more one more layer to that I just wanted to add is that the whole first part of the book is an anthology. And we specifically um, included voices from women and men from across the religious spectrum. So I think besides for the halacha piece, showing this respect, the book itself and the way it's formatted and in the voices we include, and even the haskamos that we got on this book, really represent this beauty and diversity. And I think if, like you said, if that's the only thing people take out of this book, Dayenu. I agree. Well done. That said, I am now going to act judgmental, not about the book, but about certain people. And I'm not even, I'm not quoting myself. I'm actually going to quote somebody who said something to me once. 
I'll preface this by saying that despite the fact that it's largely based upon Minhag, at least as far as I understand, and you can tell me if I'm misunderstanding something, there are certain, I'm going to call them red lines, where people would say that there are certain halachot about what you are and are not allowed to do. For example, a skirt above the knee, most people would say that's not really a community decision. That is more of an absolute halachic prohibition when it comes to the laws of tzniyut. How far down it has to go is a different question, but above the knee would be something which halacha would not allow. So if I'm wrong, please correct me. That's how I understand that. And there are other examples as well. So there are people who are not following dat yehudi. We can't say everybody is following a valid minhag. Some people are not following the halacha at all, and some people are not following their local minhag. So what someone said to me is this, I know people who are so careful about so many areas of halacha. They are b'nai aliyah, people who care about going up by any definition. Yet when it comes to tzniyut, they simply do not want to hear about it. I'm not going to start saying how prevalent this attitude is, but I have heard this, that, and I'm speaking about young women in particular, a lot of them seem to have a very difficult time, not with following a specific community guidelines, but with the entire concept of tzniyut as a whole. So, Bracha, could you maybe explain, if you can, why tzniyut for some people has become so triggering that they don't want to hear about it at all and they don't follow it, or at least they don't follow it according to what halacha demands? So I think there really is, um, there, it is triggering. I think that's the right word. Um, a lot of people have had trauma around this topic. And we can talk about that in a minute. Um, that's something that really drew me into talking about this topic specifically because of my own um, experiences that were more negative around it. But before we talk about that, there's just another piece that I haven't heard anyone else talk about. And I just think is just an important piece of the puzzle. Again, just something I've been thinking about personally is that when we talk about Sneas, one of the most uh, quoted sources is Micha, who talks about, um, he, he says, what does Hashem require from you? Um, to be to pursue justice and loving kindness and to walk modestly with Hashem. And then the Gemara goes ahead and actually uses this to say that Micha was distilling the Torah down to three concepts. So we know that Sneas is important, right? Now we our, our whole discussion is, well, what is Sneas, right? But we know it's important. And we know it's part of this divine top three list. But what I think is really interesting, and again, another piece of the puzzle that no one that I've heard is really talking about, is that the first two things that Micha talks about, justice and loving kindness, are things that are values in secular society. When we look around at the people around us, at our culture, the culture we live in, the time we live in, these are things that people are talking about all the time, right? Social justice, kindness, doing for others, like these are just part of the air we breathe and they're very natural for us to engage in those things. Sneas, is something that is very hard to explain in the time we live in. And it's not a value for our society in general. And so just to go to the, the title of this podcast, Orthodox Conundrum, I think this is a perfect example of a disconnect between the society we live in, the culture around us, and our modern world, and an important Torah value. And so I think that even though we're going to talk about the trauma and all of that, I think we also just have to know going into this topic that it's going to be challenging because of the time we live in and because of those natural, you know, feelings that we have around that. Yeah, I just wanted to add one point, um, which is we kind of created a problem for ourselves in the way we teach Sniyot, because when we teach other areas of Halakha, Shabbat, Kashrut, whatever it is, we give a very structured approach. We say, this is how it begins with a verse in the Torah. There's a discussion in the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Rishonim. We teach it in a way which shows people 
how the halachic system works. When we teach sniut, generally, we just don't do that. And I'm not sure why, because there are hundreds upon hundreds of sources that create a structure. And therefore, when you when you give when you create a vacuum, then something's going to fill that vacuum. And what's filled that vacuum is all of the dress codes and all of the judgmentalism, etc. So I think if we can just return, reclaim a conversation about Sunnit, which actually does what we do in other areas, and says, look, these are the sources. This is where it comes from. This is how the halakhic process works. Then people they may or may not you know buy in because they have a choice to do whatever they do, and it's not our job to judge whatever people choose. But at least they'll see there's a structure. What we've done is, is remove that whole structure. And actually, that undermines a much bigger thing, which is respect in the halakhic process generally. Because if people lose respect in this area, there's a really strong danger that they will say, well, just like this list of dress codes, I don't know where it comes from. So maybe I don't know where anything else comes from. So the Torah can speak for itself. It doesn't need our haskama. We just need to present it and show it and give the structure, and then people at least be able to be educated. They can't make good choices if they don't have the information. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. What I was saying was more just that there is some natural pushback to some of these concepts, but that's not to say that if we explain it in a beautiful way that is based on the sources that people won't be more open to it. I definitely think they will be. And actually, I think, you know, in a way, even though our society does not appreciate SNES and these values, I think in a way it's the exact opposite that living in a society that is so in opposition to these values almost shows us more why we need those values of dignity and self-respect and privacy. Um, and I think kids can really relate to it. You know, when I talk to teenagers, I often bring up these ideas, um, you know, especially in this world of social media, the way things are going, people can see that there's certain lines that are being crossed, certain ways we've gotten off track. And so I think that there are beautiful ways that we can teach this, like Rabbi Manning said, by returning to that halachic structure, by returning to the sources in the Torah, in Chazal, um, that really are a beautiful way to show these values to the community. Okay. I want to get back to what you mentioned a moment ago, Bracha, about trauma. But first, before we go there, I want to go back to one thing that Rabbi Manning said a few minutes ago when we discussed the legitimizing of different approaches to Tzniut. And I want to relate this specifically to one of the essays in the first part of the book by one of my own teachers, Rabbi Yitzchak Shurin. It's an essay entitled Rethinking New Stringencies in Modesty. He criticizes the idea that certain groups will, for example, not allow women's pictures to appear in magazines. Now, I want to ask about something like that. It doesn't have to be that example per se, but Using that as an example and others like it, on the one hand, being able to legitimize other types of tzniyut is very important, obviously, to say, look, they have their way, I have my way. But when it comes to certain types of tzniyut, and this might relate to the trauma, I don't know, but when it comes to certain aspects of the way communities treat tzniyut, people will say that sometimes it can actually be damaging. It can be something which is hurtful and can impede progress in ways that from Jews shouldn't want to impede. So using, again, that example of women's pictures in magazines, those magazines that don't allow women's pictures will say, well, our community has decided that this is the modest way. We don't want to, whatever, we don't want to arouse improper thoughts. Other people will say, you're sexualizing little girls and women's faces in a way which is extremely unhealthy, and that actually has a strong negative component. It's not just another path, another interpretation of that Yehudit. This is something which is strongly negative. So I'll throw it out to both of you, whoever wants to answer this. How do you answer that problem? It's not simply a matter of, well, we have our way, they have their way. Their way, or my way, might actually be a strong negative in some ways. 
Right. Uh, I'll jump in there maybe to start. Um, I think we have to have a discussion. Maybe this is the right point or maybe we'll do it a little bit about the concepts of Lifne Iver and whether women have responsibility in any way for what men think and how men act. And that's an important part of this discussion. But before we get onto that, I think that, that your point is a good one. I think the question is, is valid. And there is a danger. There is a danger in over-sexualizing um, encounters between men and women. And Rabbi Shurin does talk about this. I think an important point, which he also deals with, which maybe is the key, is that when it comes to bottom line halacha, things which are non-negotiable, then we have to do them. Even if, okay, there are different opinions, obviously, but even if there may be negative fallout, then what can I do? The halacha says this is required. If it's not kosher, it's not kosher. I can't eat it. But whenever you're dealing with something which is, let's say, a humra, now we're not talking about the world of minhag, but let's say the world of humra, and say, I don't feel that I want to sit next to somebody of the opposite sex because I just feel it's inappropriate. So maybe for you, that's a good sensitivity. I totally respect people's personal sensitivities on that. Uh, and people may not want to have their faces in you know, publications, men or women for that matter. They may feel that it is not appropriate. And maybe in their community, it isn't appropriate. But whenever you're dealing with something which is not absolutely required, there's always got to be a mishkala chasidut, as the, as the Ramchal says. There has to be a weighing. Is this extra step? going to have a long-term negative effect when everything is taken into consideration, an effect on me, an effect on others around me, an effect on the community. And the, the Ramchal is very clear in the Misilat Yisharim there that you're not allowed to take on an extra step if the net outcome will be negative. And it doesn't matter what it is. If, if you're not going to carry under the Eruv, what what impact is that going to have on your family, on, on, on your wife, on your children? You have to weigh that up, assuming the area of his kosher, but you just want to go a step beyond. So I think people have to bring that into a lot of their considerations here and ask, well, I can justify why I want to take this step, but is it actually going to be net terms negative? And I'm not sure that that, that calculation is always made. And, and one of the things that happens, your example was women's faces in, in magazines, there's a lot of negativity that is created through that because people from one particular community or that you hooded are projecting that onto everybody. And not everybody has that particular approach and not everybody wants it. And then therefore in net terms, um, there's a lot of damage being done. And, and it's a delicate balance. It really is. But if we kind of weigh that up, then maybe it'll be easier to get that right. Sitting next to people on a plane. I completely understand it why it can be uncomfortable to sit next to someone for 12 hours as they kind of fall onto your shoulder as they fall asleep on the plane. But one has to understand that the negativity which is caused by all that goes with that confrontational atmosphere on the plane, you've got to weigh that up as well. And, and the RCA came out with a very strong statement on this, and it's all part of that weighing process. So we need to do that. I think it really speaks to the intersection between just how society has changed as well. You know, it used to be that people were probably more insular within their communities. And now there's so much interaction between communities. So, you know, magazines is a good example of this, not including pictures. You have a magazine that's going to 10,000 or more readers who are from a very broad cross-section geographically, hashkafically, right? So I think that's where these, these issues come to play is these intersections between communities that might not have been happening as much before, where you have all these people interacting online, um, you know, the internet has made the world so much smaller. Um, so I think just, you know, looking at it from that cultural piece of it as well, that that's where that tension's coming is because of that globalization. 
Yeah, and that relates back to what Rabbi Manning said a while ago about how our communities are no longer geographical, how our communities today are ideological or something else. And that certainly is true in that sense. So, Bracha, let me continue with what I mentioned a moment ago about trauma. Can you tell me what you meant? You said that it was something which you had experience of and which is an important piece of this puzzle of why it's important to change things. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that a lot of people that I've I've personally struggled with a lot of negativity around this topic, that's actually what what really spurred me to do something about it was my own experiences of the way it had been taught to me. And then as I got older learning, and when I say taught, I don't mean formally, you know, I don't mean having a class in, you know, seventh or eighth grade where someone got up and said, this is what SNES is or isn't. I think it was more general things that I picked up, you know, over my schooling, um, you know, as I was growing up. And then as I got older and started learning more of the sources myself and tried and realized this is not, this doesn't really represent what SNES actually is, a lot of the things that I had been exposed to. And so I think that those ways of teaching it or speaking about it as a community do cause a lot of damage. And Rabbi Manning already spoke about some of the problematic ways it's being done. But I see a lot of the fallout among other women, um, especially girls and women, who will say things like, um, someone just told me this, um, I saw you wrote a book on SNES. I feel bad saying this, but I'll never buy it. <laughs> so, um, and these are people who are part of the community, who dress modestly, you know, are affiliated, but they just have this visceral reaction to a book on the topic of SNES or a class on it or uh, anything related to it. It just elicits this very visceral physiological response. If you ever go into a room of women and just say the word SNES, you can physically see them tense up <laughs> so um, and get defensive. Like, what's this person going to say? That's what I mean by trauma. Around the same time that I was thinking about this project, um, I was in this Facebook group with thousands of from women. And every time someone would post a question related to SNES, could have been the most innocent, well-meaning question. She would just get attacked from left and right. Everyone would be yelling and screaming and feeling judged and feeling shamed and it just, it was so disproportionate and extreme, the way people responded, um, that it just made me, and again, I'm actually trained as a clinical social worker, so I just see trauma in that type of response. You know, if someone says something and then you respond with such a disproportionate response, there's a saying, if it's hysterical, it's historical, right? So when people respond in that way, that to me says there's something going on here. There's a problem that people can't be around the word SNES, they can't read books on the word SNES, they don't want to talk about it, and if someone does bring it up, they attack them. Um, <laughs> so that, that's kind of what I was just seeing going on in the community. I don't think everybody has this. I'm sure there's people that are neutral or positive about SNES, but I've just been seeing, again, thousands and thousands of people who do have these type of responses. I definitely see that as well. I've heard a lot about it, and in particular, the episode you referenced before, Rabbi Manning, about Shana Goldberg, that did uh, receive a fair bit of comment, let's just say. And mm. uh, she did a fantastic job, and it opened some conversations that definitely opened my eyes to what people are thinking about this. Let me continue about some of those aspects of trauma as well. For example, some people argue that Snoot, paradoxically perhaps, in the process of emphasizing human dignity, actually contributes to an over-sexualization of women in religious society. The very fact that women are told perhaps this gets back to the list of requirements attitude, that they need to hide themselves or that society needs to hide them, indicates that they are seductresses, that men can't handle themselves in the presence of women who have anything showing whatsoever 
They should wear nothing that would possibly cause a man to have uh, an increase of his Yetzirah. I know that this has led to real trauma, and it's very upsetting for a lot of people. So how, Rabbi Manning, would you answer people who make that claim that, of course, Sneet leads to trauma. We're telling women that they are sexual beings in a way that they don't want to be. Okay, so um, I think that the balance of physical, spiritual, sexual, etc. I have nothing to add other than to what Shana said. I think that's a she expressed it well, and I think woman has to be the person to express that and discuss that with women because it's a very specific feeling. But I think that the uh, the, the premise of the question, well, the question is a valid question, but the premise of the misunderstanding is, is just wrong. Um, Lifne Iver, maybe now is the time to talk about it. Lifne Iver is the, is the prohibition in the Torah that you don't want to put a stumbling block in front of other people, cause other people to make bad choices, even giving them bad advice. It's, and that is a Torah mitzvah. Lifne Iver applies in all areas of life. It's a root of basic consideration and uh, an understanding that we wouldn't want to put other Jews in a situation which compromises them, uh, whether we're you know, causing them to drive on Shabbat or eat food that's not kosher. And of course, Lifne Iver is part of the debate in how people interact and cause and, and cause effect on other people. That's true. But Lifne Iver is not and never has been the root of tzniut. Women are not responsible, ultimately, for the way that men react. Men have responsibility for their eyes, for their actions, etc. The Gemara says very clearly that if, if, if a man looks inappropriately at a woman's little finger, that's considered to be a very serious prohibition. Women do not have to cover their little fingers in order to you know, help men avoid that problem. Uh, if a man looks at a woman's colored clothing then it's a, and thinks inappropriately, so that's his responsibility. Women don't have to dress in black and white in order to avoid that. In fact, the Gemara uses colored clothing as specifically the kind of clothing that women would wear. Men are responsible for that. And therefore, I think there has to be a, a bit of a reset on that. A lot of women are taught that they have to hide themselves to protect men who are, you know, unexploded bombs ready to detonate at any moment. This is a mistake. There's even a Gemara in Tarnis that, that, that highlights this, where there's one particular Rav who lost his students. The students left him and delegitimized his Torah because of his overreaction that his daughter was very beautiful and other men were looking at her and he focused that on the daughter. It's a fascinating Gemara, which talks about how even well-meaning and, and very educated Tamadeh Chachamim can sometimes lose perspective on this particular issue. And the Gemara makes it very clear. So uh, yes, Lifnei Iver is a part of it, but it's not the root of it. And it's actually a major mistake People have asked me questions like, well, if this is all about my effect on men, so surely I can dress and behave in whatever I, way I want in front of non-Jewish men. I could go to a mixed speech as long as I know everybody there is not Jewish, because it doesn't matter, does it? Because they don't have a mitzvah of shimirat enayim, of, uh, and therefore I don't have an obligation of lifnei iba. It's a logical, putting the dots together, it makes a lot of sense, but only because it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what sneerat is about. Uh, and therefore, we have to reset that. It's not about hiding women. It's about all of these other things that we've been trying to talk about. And, you know, just like people are saying, well, it doesn't matter how I act in front of men. It will be the same thing in, in single gender settings, right? That there's still an idea of sneeze. When you're a woman among other women or men among other men, there's behavior and attitudes that would not be considered sneeze as well. So I think when people make it all about, you know, how are women in front of men and men in front of women, they're really taking a very broad, beautiful concept. And again, reducing it to one very specific aspect. 
then let me ask a question to both of you, because if really that's missing the point, if it's not an aspect of putting a stumbling block before the blind, if they either are simply not mute at something else, then in that case, if it's not women's responsibility, maybe I'm asking a societal question, maybe I'm asking a halacha question, I'm not quite sure, but how did we get to where we are now where tznut remains primarily a mitzvah that falls upon women? Is that simply an historical mistake? And even if it is a mistake, nevertheless, that doesn't change the fact that al-pi the rules for how women dress, are significantly more stringent than the rules for how men dress. There's no question that's true halachically, that what a man would be allowed to wear, a woman would not be allowed to wear. The allowances given to men of wearing shorts, for example, that may or may not be okay, but I can't imagine a postic would say it is okay for a woman. That seems to be part of the iver. To say that it's simply not relevant sounds not necessarily accurate. Rabbi Manning, am I right? I, or am I, 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 I definitely think it's relevance. It's ever is relevant because the way that we project to other people is always relevant. But it's not the foundation. That, that That's the important thing. Men and women are not the same. We, we are not a religion that argues that everyone is identical. Um, and therefore, it's not surprising that the application of these principles is different. You know, but if I was writing a book on, let's say, Bitachon and all Ahavat Hashem, I wouldn't write a book on Bitachon for women. I'd write a book on bitachon because it affects everybody. Maybe there would be a sub-argument or a sub-discussion as to how this specifically relates to men or specifically relates to women. And of course, men's bodies and women's bodies are different. There's no question about that. And we need to have that discussion, and it's and it's an important part of it. But it's not the root. And therefore, when we when we talk about sneers, I think we have to move aside from that. It is relevant, of course, and if neither is relevant. But people over obsess about that point. How about the whole issue? Let's not get this wrong. This is not the most or only important issue in the world. This is an important issue. You know, I teach a lot of different things. This sneers is maybe one percent of the of, of the material that I teach. Um, but this seems to be the thing that is really bothering people. So this ended up the book that that I ended up thanks to Brocher with her encouragement constantly ended up writing because this seems to be you know where the change could usefully be. That makes sense. I understand. I want to ask you, Bracha, about one of the other aspects of Tznut, not speaking about the over-sexualization that I mentioned a moment ago, but specifically the self-expression of women and how it relates to that. This is actually a question which I asked Shana as well. I'm curious about your answer to this, because some people say that the laws of Tznut have a negative consequence of underplaying the significance of clothing in a person's self-identification, choosing what you wear and the ability to dress as you like is considered by many people to be an important part of maybe not self-actualization, but certainly in terms of developing a sense of identity. Of course, I know that Jewish law is about setting limits. Just because I want to be identified a certain way or I want to actualize myself a certain way, that doesn't mean I can do everything I want. Obviously, halacha, mitzvot are about saying this is permitted and this is prohibited. Nevertheless, it still is an issue that a lot of people I know find difficult. So how do you weigh that issue in terms of the problem of self-identification as a result of what you wear and telling people you can only wear certain things? Yeah, I mean, I find it very difficult. So I relate to the question. Um, I think we do live, we live in a time where people do use, um, you know, physical expressions like clothing and accessories and things like that as a way of expressing themselves. Um, I think that that is definitely true. Um, and I think, you know, anytime we have halacha, halacha puts limits on what we can do. So that's just built into the system is that, you know, we can't eat certain things, we can't go certain places, we can't do certain things, we can't listen to certain things. That's just 
part of being an Orthodox Jew is, you know, keeping halacha. And that does sometimes feel like it can stop us from doing certain things. Um, that being said, I think it's also important to know the things where we, we're feeling stifled and we feel like, oh, this is not an area where I can express myself. Is that because of the halacha itself or is that because of other societal and cultural things that are happening um, around us? Uh, so, for example, in Baltimore, um, last I think it was last night, they had a huge concert here um, with a female singer. I did not attend, but that has been a new thing, especially in the more yeshivish world, is this acceptance of female singers doing these huge sold out events. Um, with light professional lighting and music, really incredibly powerful programs. Um, and that's something that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago really wasn't happening to this extent. And so probably 20 years ago, women were saying, well, I feel held back because I can't express myself or my music, express myself musically in certain ways. But it wasn't necessarily because of the halacha itself, but maybe more cultural things that were happening. So I think it's really important to look at just for ourselves, you know, what, what part of this is the halacha itself that, that it just is what it is. And I need to respect that. And then what part of it is maybe also cultural or societally where I feel stifled, but really I could do this thing. And I could express myself in that way, you know, within the halacha, within the dasyuhadis of the community that I belong to. Um, so because it is important for all of us to find ways to have self-expression, both men and women. And I know for women, a lot of times it is connected to dress more than men. I have an uncle who has five of the same shirt and five of the same pants that he wears to work. It's kind of a joke in the family. And he always looks really nice and presentable. But most women would not be okay having five of the same shirt and five of the same skirt. Um, so it is something that definitely comes up for women and girls. Um, but I think we need to find ways to express ourselves within that system. Just some of these conversations are really important conversations about what halakha is and what it means to have limits. Uh, and the deeper philosophical questions about the halakhic system itself, which often present in flashpoint uh, confrontations on sniut, but they're really nothing to do with sniut. If somebody turns around and says, why does God care if I have a third ear piercing? That is a question which is extremely important, but it's nothing to do with sniut. It's about why we keep halakha at all and what that does for us and what that does for God, etc. Um, why does halakha restrict what I do? is a question which applies generally to the issue of how do I become creative? You know, if I'm learning a musical instrument and they say you have to sit for three hours a day and learn scales, and I say, well, all I want to do is be creative and make music, the answer is, well, this will actually enable you to have the self-discipline to make creative music. Whereas if you just smash your hands on the piano and have a free-for-all, it won't work. But these, these are conversations which are really important to have with our students, with ourselves, with our families, with our children. Um, but they're nothing specifically to do with Sneot. And I think it's important that we have them, but that we frame them in the right in the right context. Okay, then let me move on in that same vein, Rabbi Manning, and talk about the halachot of Tzniyut. We're not going to have a shir now in Hilchot Tzniyut, but I do want to ask you about some of the ideas you've mentioned in terms of education and the differences between minhag, society, the halachot as they're enumerated in certain sources. When you teach, is it important to let people know what is halacha, what is minhag, what is what our community does? Or by doing that, are you perhaps actually giving them an opening to say, well, when he says it's minhag, as you had a disclaimer before, that doesn't mean you don't have to do it. When is it important to tell people what the basic halacha is? And when is it important to tell people, you know something, that may be the halacha, but this is what we do? Right. Education is always a balance. Um, on the one hand, 
You don't want to be um, overly complex to the point that people will leave in a way which is confused and unhappy. The Rambam makes this point in his introduction to Maureen Avuchin. Um, if I'm a math teacher, I don't go into a ninth grade math class and teach postdoctoral maths. Otherwise, everyone's going to be on the floor crying because they didn't understand it. and No one's ever going to want to touch it again. So on the one hand, you want to make it appropriate for the environment and the context. On the other hand, you must never, never dummy down. And you can never teach in a way which is disrespectful or distrustful of your students. I mean, the Chazal expressed this in the classic way that, you know, Adam told Chava that God said not to touch and not to eat the fruit. And therefore, Chava didn't realize that not to eat it was the actual Torah mitzvah and not to touch it was an additional fence that Adam had maybe quite rightly created. And therefore, the Midrash says when the snake pushed her against the fruit and she touched it and nothing happened, she thought, oh, well, the whole thing's obviously nonsense had he only just brought her into the conversation in a way which respected her ability to understand it and said look the torah says as it were don't eat it but there's an important rabbinic fence which is don't touch it and let's make sure we understand that then none of that disaster would have happened in the same way so i think it is generally important to make sure that people do understand these gradations because um otherwise you're not respecting their you're not respecting their in intelligence and they're not going to keep the halakha properly if you tell everybody that everything is a Torah mitzvah in the hope that that will get them to take it seriously, they will actually not keep the halacha in the correct way because there are certain things that apply to rabbinic mitzvahs in different ways or to minhagim in different ways. So all you'll be doing is, is leading them down a, a path of ineducation just by trying to get them to take it more seriously. What you need to do is educate as to why rabbinic mitzvahs are actually binding. Where is the authority? Where does it come from? Why is minhag binding? You need to educate more, not educate less, in order to make that uh, it, in order to make that clear. So you're always striking that balance of making it accessible without dumbing it down in everything, in every area, and in halacha for sure. And you should never, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe made this point very clear: never educate people in Torah on a level which is lower intellectually than the education that they have in secular studies. Otherwise, they will always see the Torah as infantile or, or certainly not appropriate for them where they are. So you have to meet people where they are um, and give them that level of sophistication. And if people are looking to learn more about the process of halacha, um, to really understand that, because as Rabbi Manning said, I think the general feeling we have toward halacha and toward where do these things come from does trickle into our relationship with Snias. I actually recommend Rabbi Manning's website. He has a series that I start, I did not finish it yet, but I started going through on this exact topic that I think really sensitizes people to all the issues involved here with halacha and how it evolved and where does it come from and gives people that real grounding um, in that piece of it. Thank you. Let me ask an unfair question to both of you. What if somebody were to say, everything that you're saying now sounds great, but bottom line, it's just apologetics. You're trying to make Sniut sound better for people who don't want to hear about Sniut, for a modern audience that may perhaps be turned off by Sniut, that may have had the trauma that you mentioned before, Bracha. That the real truth is, when we're talking about Sniut, it is about hemlines. It is about all these things. And you're just reframing it so it sounds better. And quit the apologetics. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious how you would answer someone who does say that. I think that the reason people say that is because that is how it's been done in the past. And that's exactly what Berkovitz says in his foreword, which I quoted earlier. Um, so I think people go in expecting, like, when are they going to tell me that I need to do this and I need to do that? And the list of rules, like, they're almost expecting it to be hidden somewhere in there. What I would recommend is to actually learn the sources. 
because that's something that has been very illuminating for me is going through the sources, looking at what is what do Chazal uh, talk about this topic? How do they describe people who are tsnu'ah? Most of the people they describe are actually men. So learning about that was very interesting to me, learning about the Mida of Tznias. Um, there's a lot of really good resources on this. Um, there's a piece by in the Sifse Chaim, by Chaim Friedlander that I recommend on this topic. Um, there's a new Sefer that I just started learning. Um, I have not gotten too much through it yet, but it's called Hatsne Lechas Im Elokecha. It's by someone, I believe it's Rabbi Krohn from Lakewood on this topic. So the and of course, you can look in the original sources themselves in the Gemara, in the in you know in the Torah to understand better those sources. But I think if you look at the actual sources, then I think that argument actually fades away. Right, I, I absolutely agree with that answer. Apologetics is where you have a later revisionist, a rereading of things, which will make it would sweeten it in order for the people to accept it. Um, people can read this book, they can see the sources, there are thousands of sources cited, they can look at how we learn them, they can look at the originals, I would love that, they can go to the originals and learn them, and say, well, is the way that, the, you know, that these authors, the many voices in the book, is the way that they learn these sources authentic, is that what they say, is it apologetics, and that exercise alone would engage people in a massive Talmud Torah connection with Sneas, as opposed to just, where did this list of dress code come from? which of course is like upsetting and traumatizing. So let people read it, let people look at the sources and look them up and write back to us. One of the reasons that we opened a website at the same time as this book is so there can be an ongoing conversation. There are different ways of learning these things. We want to hear from people. We want to hear different perspectives on that. And then, you know, if we get to produce a second edition, which we may well do, we've already had to reprint the first edition because uh, they were all Baruch Hashem sold out very, very quickly. Um, but, you know, when we get to the next edition, let's include those ideas and, and, and discussions and just be open, authentic and honest about it. That's the best way. Certainly, I agree with that. We're coming close to the end, but I want to ask you about the obsession with Tzniut, which some people have. I'm going to quote a podcast that I heard recently. I'm sure the person was well-meaning, but I believe very misguided. This is an actual quote. He said, God defines a woman by her modesty. The whole entity of a woman and the essence and purpose of a woman is how she dresses. That's a quote. And if this were simply a one-off, I wouldn't care. But a lot of people I know think that way. This is not the only time I've heard this before. This is representative of a certain viewpoint, obviously quite different from the way that the two of you are presenting to your credit. I want to ask about the obsession that some people slash communities seem to have about Sniut and how we can combat it. And I'm not going to, I'll show my cards. I believe that anytime we obsess and put one mitzvah at the top of the heap, it's a type of paganism. It's a type of idolatry. We're taking one mitzvah and worshiping the mitzvah rather than worshiping God. That is the case for Sniut. How can we go against this and avoid that obsession, having a healthy relationship with Sniut without that obsessiveness, which is very, very negative in my view? I'll let Rabbi Manning speak to this, but I just wanted to say one thing first. Micha does put Sneas at the top of the heap. So we have to own that he does put it at the top of the heap, but he doesn't talk about it in the way that this person seems to be talking about it. So yes, it needs to be put in its proper place, but the Sneas that we're talking about that is essential to being a Jew is the Sneas as a mitzvah and a midah, not the Sneas that it seems like this person's referring to. So I just wanted to say that first to kind of clarify that piece of it. 
I think that's a very important point, and I will clarify what I meant. Anytime we take one halacha or one mitzvah and put it at the top, that is what I call idolatry. I think Micha was speaking about a value, a Jewish Torah value, rather than a specific action. So that's definitely a, a good point. So I appreciate your saying that, Bracha. Um, yeah, I'm always very nervous about rabbis who speak in the name of God and say God defines this and God thinks this. Uh, you know, that's already itself a, a, a problematic approach. Um, we have our Torah, which God gave us, and from which we understand how we're meant to act in this world. Um, there is a way that we frame that conversation. It's called Tanakh, Chazal, Mishnah, Gemara, Rishonim, Achronim, Sak, etc. There is a system. That's how we always do it. The way that we know that we're getting it in the right context and not over-obsessing about one thing is by keeping that holistic picture um, healthy. And that's how we develop our all our understandings of hashkafa, halacha, etc. There's a system. What's gone wrong in this particular case is that certain people have fixated on a letter written by the Vilna Gon, which was written by him to his family, and taken certain wording of it, um, which is disputed, and there are different versions of it, and turned that into an entire worldview. Now, that's the problem here. The, the letter of the Vilna Gon is very inspiring. It needs to be learned, like everything the Vilna Gon wrote needs to be learned and given lots of serious consideration. But whenever an entire platform of halakha and hashkafa rests on a disputed understanding of a letter written by someone as great as the Vilna Gon, but in the 18th century, you know that something's gone wrong. That's not how we create our understanding of what God wants us to do. We create it from the sources. Like I said, the Tanakh and the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Achronim. And that's what we're trying to reclaim. There's nothing wrong with the Vilna Gaon's letter. It's part of a bigger picture. But you have to see that bigger picture. Otherwise, you know that you have like obsessed and fixated. If we did that with anything else in the halachic system, then people will be up in arms saying, how could you possibly do that? That's not how Judaism works. So let's just return to a system which we all know and love and which enables us to connect with these things in a way which is contextual. Very important point. Let me ask each of you a final question. I'll say this, the book Reclaiming Dignity, which has been so well received, and it is a marvelous book, and I applaud you're doing this, and I certainly applaud as well you're trying to reframe the conversation in a much healthier way than it often is. What do you want people ultimately, in just a couple of sentences, each of you, to get out of this book? If you could simply summarize, what is the most important thing that you want someone to take away after reading this book? Rabbi Manning? I want people to understand that there's a conversation that they can have that they've not yet been let into that may or may not, I can't decide that, they have to decide, that they may or may not reconnect them with not only this mitzvah, but with the entire halachic process in a way which will enable them to enrich and enhance their Jewish lives. That's what I'd like them to get out of it. I really would like people to get out of it, that exactly the title, to reclaim their own relationship. Um, and for those of us who do have that negativity, um, to find healing, honestly, to find a perspective that resonates, that's relevant, where they can in integrate this incredible value mitzvah and nida into their lives in a way that works for them. And that might look different for different people. So I think it's really important that this is a very personal process, that people are going to read this and they're each going to take something different out of it. They're each going to relate to a different part of it. There might be parts of it they don't like, and that's totally fine. I actually talk about that in the introduction. But to find the pieces that do work for them, that do help them to feel connected and to reclaim this as a really important part of our Judaism. 
Bracha, I'll mention that my opening question to you was that writing a book about Sinyut was a lose-lose proposition. Now I'll say at the end that having spoken to a lot of people about reclaiming dignity and what you and Robin Manning have done together, I have so far not heard a single negative comment. Everyone I've spoken to, people from different parts of the Orthodox spectrum have said, yes, it's a good book, or I've heard it's a really good book. And for you to be able to take something, which, as I put it, it seems like a lose-lose, and yet somehow appeal to people across the religious spectrum is a very, very impressive achievement. So I applaud both of you and congratulate both of you on the success of the book. Bracha Palakoff from Rabbi Anthony Manning, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.